Chapter Six of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The country is in danger. The king wrote to the assembly to complain of the violation of his residence, and he issued a proclamation to his people. So it appeared there were two peoples, the kings and those he complained of. On the 24th the king and queen were cheered by the National Guards, whom they were reviewing, and on the same day the Paris Directory suspended Mayor Petion, who had told the king to his face that the city was not riotous. Whence sprung such audacity? Three days after, the murder was out. Lafayette came to beard the assembly in its house taunted by a member who had said when he wrote to encourage the king in his opposition and to daunt the representatives he is very saucy in the midst of his army let us see if he would talk as big if he stood among us he escaped censure by a nominal majority a victory worse than a defeat lafayette had again sacrificed his popularity for the royalists he cherished a last hope with the enthusiasm to be kindled among the National Guards by the King and their old commander, he proposed to march on the assembly, and put down the opposition, while, in the confusion, the King should gain the camp at Malboige. It was a bold scheme, but was almost sure in the state of minds. Unfortunately, Danton ran to Petion at three in the morning with the news, and the review was countermanded who had betrayed the king and the general. The queen, who had said she would rather be lost than owe safety to Lafayette. She was helping fate, for she was doomed to be slain by Danton. But supposing she had less spite, and the Girondists might have been crushed, they were determined not to be caught napping another time. It was necessary to restore the revolutionary current to its old course, for it had been checked and was running upstream. The soul of the party, Mademoiselle Roland, hoped to do this by rousing the assembly. She chose the orator, Vignon, to make the appeal, and in a splendid speech he shouted from the rostrum what was already circulating in an undertone. "'The country is in danger!' The effect was like a water-spout. The whole house, even to the royalists, spectators, officials, all were enveloped and carried away by this mighty cyclone. All roared with enthusiasm. That same evening, Barbaroux wrote to his friend Rebecchi at Marseilles, "'Send me five hundred men eager to die.' On the 11th of July, the assembly declared the country to be in danger but the king withheld his authorization until the 21st, late at night. Indeed, this call to arms was an admission that the ruler was impotent, for the nation would not be asked to help herself unless the king could or would do nothing. Great terror made the palace quiver in the interval. As a plot was expected to break out on the 14th, the anniversary of the taking of the Bastille, a holiday— Robespierre had sent an address out from the Jacobin Club which suggested regicide. So persuaded was the court party that the king was induced to wear a shirt of mail to protect him against the assassin's knife, 
and Mademoiselle Campan had another for the queen who refused to don it. "'I should be only too happy if they would slay me,' she observed in a low voice. "'Oh, God, they would do me a greater kindness than thou didst in giving me life. They would relieve me of a burden.' Mademoiselle Campan went out, choking. The king, who was in the corridor, took her by the hand and led her into the lobby between his rooms and his sons, and, stopping, groped for a secret spring. It opened a press perfectly hidden in the wall, with edges guarded by the mouldings. A large portfolio of papers was in the closet, with gold coin on the shelves. The case of papers was so heavy that the lady could not lift it, and the king carried it to her rooms, saying that the queen would tell her how to dispose of it. She thrust it between the bed and the mattress, and went to the queen, who said, "'Come on. Those are documents fatal to the king if he were placed on trial, which the Lord forbid, particularly, which is why no doubt he confides it all to you. There is a report of a council in which the king gave his opinion against war. He made all the ministers sign it, and reckons on this document being as beneficial in event of a trial as the others may be hurtful. The July festival arrived. The idea was to celebrate the triumph of Petion over the king, that of murdering the latter not being probably entertained. Suspended in his functions by the assembly, Petion was restored to them on the eve of the rejoicings. At eleven in the morning, the king came down the grand staircase with the queen and the royal children. Three or four hundred thousand troops of unknown tendencies escorted them. In vain did the queen seek on their faces some marks of sympathy. The kindest averted their faces. There was no mistaking the feeling of the crowd for cheers for Petion rose on all sides. As if, too, to give the ovation a more durable stamp than momentary enthusiasm, the king and the queen could read on all hats a lettered ribbon, Petion forever. The queen was pale and trembling. Convinced that a plot was aimed at her husband's life, she started at every instant, fancying she saw a hand thrust out to bring down a dagger or level a pistol. On the parade ground, the monarch alighted, took a place on the left of the Speaker of the House, and with him walked up to the altar of the country. The Queen had to separate from her lord here, to go into the grand stand with her children. She stopped, refusing to go any further until she saw how he got on, and kept her eyes on him. At the foot of the altar, one of those rushes came which is common to great gatherings, the king disappeared as though submerged. The queen shrieked, and made as if to rush to him, but he rose into view anew, climbing the steps of the altar. Among the ordinary symbols figuring in these feasts, such as justice, power, liberty, etc., one glittered mysteriously and dreadfully under black crepe, carried by a man clad in black and crowned with cypress. This weird emblem particularly caught the queen's eye. She was riveted to the spot, and, while encouraged a little by the king's fate, she could not take her gaze from this somber apparition. 
Making an effort to speak, she gasped without addressing anyone especially. Who is that man dressed in mourning? The death's man, replied a voice which made her shudder. And what has he under the veil? The axe which chopped off the head of King Charles I. The queen turned round, losing color, for she thought she recognized the voice. She was not mistaken. The speaker was the magician who had shown her the awful future in a glass at Tavernay, and warned her at Sèvres, and on her return from Varennes. Cogliostro, in fact. She screamed and fell fainting into Princess Elizabeth's arms. One week subsequently, on the twenty-second, at six in the morning, all Paris was aroused by the first of a series of minute guns. The terrible booming went on all through the day. At daybreak, the six legions of the National Guards were collected at the city hall. Two processions were formed throughout the town and suburbs to spread the proclamation that the country was in danger. Danton had the idea of this dreadful show, and he had entrusted the details to Sergent, the engraver, an immense stage manager. Each party left the hall at six o'clock. First marched a cavalry squadron, with the mounted band playing a funeral march specially composed. Next, six field pieces abreast where the roadway was wide enough or in pairs. Then, four heralds on horseback bearing ensigns labeled Liberty, Equality, Constitution, Our Country. Then came twelve city officials, with swords by the sides and their scarfs on. Then, all alone, isolated like France herself, a National Guardsman, in the saddle of a black horse, holding a large tricolor flag on which was lettered, Citizens, the country is in danger. In the same order as the preceding, rolled six guns with weighty jolting and heavy rumbling, National Guards and cavalry at the rear. On every bridge crossing in square, the party halted and silence was commanded by the ruffling of the drums. The banners were waved, and when no sound was heard and the crowd held their peace, the grave voice of the municipal crier arose, reading the proclamation and adding, "'The country is in danger!' This last line was dreadful, and rang in all hearts. It was the shriek of the nation, of the motherland, of France. It was the parent calling on her offspring to help her. And ever and anon the guns kept thundering." On all the large open places, platforms were run up for the voluntary enlistments. With the intoxication of patriotism, the men rushed to put their names down. Some were too old but lied to be inscribed, some too young but stood on tiptoe and swore they were full sixteen. Those who were accepted leaped to the ground, waving their enrollment papers and cheering on singing the Let It Go On and kissing the cannon's mouth. It was the betrothal of the French to war. This war of twenty-odd years, which will result in the freedom of Europe, although it may not altogether be in our time. 
the excitement was so great that the assembly was appalled by its own work it sent men through the town to cry out brothers for the sake of the country no rioting the court wishes disorder as an excuse for taking the king out of the city so give it no pretext the king should stay among us these dread sowers of words added in a deep voice he must be punished they mentioned nobody by name but all knew who was meant every canon report had an echo in the heart of the palace those were the king's room where the queen and the rest of the family were gathered they kept together all day from feeling that their fate was decided this time so grand and solemn they did not separate until midnight when the last cannon was fired on the following night mademoiselle campin was aroused she had slept in the queen's bedroom since a fellow had been caught there with a knife who might have been a murderer is your majesty ill she asked hearing a moan i am always in pain campin but i trust to have it over soon now yes and she held out her pale hand in the moonbeam making it seem all the whiter in a month this same moonlight will see us free and disengaged from our chains oh you have accepted lafayette's offers said the lady and you will flee lafayette's help thank god no said the queen with repugnance there was no mistaking no but in a month my nephew francis will be in paris is your majesty quite sure asked the royal governess alarmed yes all is settled returned the sovereign alliances made between austria and prussia two powers who will march upon paris in combination we have the rout of the french princes and their allied armies and we can surely say that on such and such a day they will be here or there but do you not fear murder the queen finished the phrase i know that might befall but they may hold us as hostages for their necks when vengeance impends however nothing venture nothing win and when do the allied sovereigns expect to be in paris inquired madame campan between the fifteenth and twentieth of august was the reply god grant it said the lady but the prayer was not granted or if heard heaven sent france the succor she had not dreamed of the marseillaise hymn of liberty End of chapter 6. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.